Um, we're in Galatians, and um, I'm going to read our text. Usually, it takes us a while to read the text, and yet last week we had one verse. Today we have five verses. Usually in the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, um, we have so much packed into a little bit that we have to take it really slowly. And today it's Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read those verses? Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the believers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to help us to understand his word this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, creator of heaven and earth, our creator, the one who made us, who formed us, who planned every day of our life before we were born and gave us your word, your living word. We pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us hear it, not just with our ears, but with our hearts, and that you would, by that power, help us to take hold of it and hear what you're speaking to us individually. Lord, we, we acknowledge we need your help. Our minds can wonder. Our hearts are often set on other things, but right now, Lord, help us focus on what you have to say here in these words. We ask for your help. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, we had kind of an introduction to the letter. We just focused on the first verse and explaining the situation about the Apostle Paul, why he was addressing these churches to whom he wrote in this region of Galatia, which is now Turkey. And verse 1 told us of Paul's unique calling after the resurrection to be an apostle. Um, this was something the false teachers were challenging because all the other apostles were chosen during the lifetime, the time of ministry of Jesus on the earth. But Paul tells us his calling wasn't from men, insinuating that those who brought the teaching of the, the, this false teaching that was entering the church, uh, saying that it was necessary to obey the laws of Moses to be saved, were actually appointed by men, self-appointed. And by contrast, it was the risen Christ who had appointed him, chosen him, just as he chose the other apostles when he walked the earth. Um, in verse 1, again, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So last week we saw in verse 1 that Paul defended his calling as being from God, who is more than just mere man. And in verse 2, regarding, regarding all the brothers who are with me, Paul is speaking of the congregation with, from whom he's writing. Now, we don't know exactly 
where that was, but he's always with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we only find a few times in, in Acts and in Paul's letters where he has any time alone. He's almost always ministering with somebody and often with a whole team of people. Um, if I, I often say, if you don't think you can learn something from somebody, sit down and talk to them until you do. Because every one of us is made in the image of God. And every brother and sister in Christ has, their, has had their own journey and their own experiences with the Lord. We can learn from anyone. Those with Paul agree with the message he's writing. Now, again, we don't know if, it's, if he's referring to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 or one of the churches like the church he was at in Antioch, the church that first sent him out as a missionary. But the point is that he's not alone in his convictions, as his opponents may have claimed. It's he and those who are with him that, are, that have this message of the gospel of grace. The churches of Galatia were uh, planted on his first missionary church journey that when he was first sent out with Barnabas from the church at Antioch. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. In fact, if you want to do a little homework to get ready for uh, this, this whole series and find out about the beginning of the churches in Galatia, read Acts 13 and 14. And because he planted them, that's why he has this fiery responsibility to keep them firmly in the truth. Uh, addressing these false teaching work-based salvation that had been taught to them by some legalists who had come to visit the churches of Galatia. And this is an essential tenet of our faith, of the Christian faith. Jesus saves us, period. It's just him, not Jesus plus our good works, not Jesus plus anything, it's just Jesus. There was and is today no other way to be saved except through what God did through Jesus Christ, through Jesus' sacrifice. He alone was God's choice to be the provision for our sins. And Paul sees this as his God-given message for which he feels a great responsibility to share with the world. Listen to this devotion as he expressed it in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. I don't consider my life dear to myself. Uh, it's, it's not precious to me, except that I can do what God called me to do, and that is to testify of the grace of God, the gospel of grace. Now, we don't know all the details of how he he arrived at this gospel of grace. We know about his conversion. We read about that a number of times in the book of Acts, three times in Acts. But we know that after his conversion, he spent about three years in the deserts of Assyrian Arabia. And I would guess that he was just pouring over the scriptures, trying to understand what is it that my teachers missed? 
What did they, how did they get it so wrong? Because his encounter with the risen Jesus had changed his whole interpretation of Scripture. What had his teachers failed to see? And then, as he explains in Romans 4 and 5, it started to become clear to him that the grace of God prompted people to have faith in God for their salvation. And he cites Abraham and David as examples of those who were hungry for God, came to him by faith, and were justified by that faith. That's in Romans 4, verse 3 and verse 6. Romans 4, verse 3 and 6. He began to proclaim this gospel of grace that he received by revelation, and then he went to the apostles and had it confirmed by them. They said, yep, that's the gospel. You've got it. You don't need to change it. It's, it's what we understand as well. Now, the church in Jerusalem and, and the other 11 apostles had been a little slow to understand it fully. But Peter's divine encounter with this Gentile Cornelius confirmed the gospel of grace. You can read about that in Acts 15. Um, it, let me just briefly tell it to you. Peter was on the roof of a, a man in, in uh, uh, Joppa's, Joppa's a district near what we call Tiberias today. And he was on the roof of the house praying while uh, his friend Simon the Tanner was inside the house. And while he's praying, he has a vision of this sheet that comes down from heaven with all these unclean things that Jews wouldn't eat. And he hears this voice from heaven say, take and eat, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I, I don't eat anything that's unclean. I'm faithful to the laws of Moses, the kosher laws. It happens three times. And then after the third time, the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and tells him, somebody's coming to knock on the door. I want you to go with them. Meanwhile, in another city nearby, this Roman centurion who's faithful, he helps the Jews. He knows there's only one God. He's rejected the Roman multitude of gods, the, the myth, mythological gods. He's worshiping the God of Israel and he's praying and he's asking God to, to show him the truth. And an angel appears to him and says, send some men to Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner. And there's a man named Peter there, and he'll explain it to you. So those men leave Joppa, and about the time Peter is finished with this vision, there it is, you know, God's timing. He just put it all together. Peter went down, went with those Gentiles, which was really unusual for a Jew, came to Cornelius's house and normally a Jew wouldn't enter into a Gentile's home, but it suddenly dawned on Peter, and I, and I wish I had written the verse down, but Peter says, now I get it. People anywhere who seek God, the Holy Spirit comes to them and draws them to himself. And so he starts to explain the gospel to them, and while he's explaining it, the Holy Spirit comes on him. And they're all speaking in tongues like the apostles experienced in Pentecost at Acts chapter 2. And Peter goes, well, that's it. You know, it's all by faith through God's grace. They believed. They heard the word of God and believed. And it doesn't matter what their life was before. 
because they've come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, the grace of God grants them that salvation that they sought through what Jesus did for them. So um, Jesus alone, the provision for sins. Um, and, and that, when Peter went back to the early church and explained what had happened to them, um, they realized the whole, they got the whole picture, a firmer grasp on the whole picture that salvation was for everyone by faith alone. And that coincided with the Apostle Paul's message. In Christ, we are all by grace sons and daughters of God. All who seek God for salvation and receive it through what Jesus has done for us are sons and daughters of God. We are all equals. That was what was really weird about the early church. A man could have slaves in his household, go to church, and the slave might be his elder. That was so upside down for the Roman world that they didn't know what to think of it. And they made up all kinds of weird stories because it was very different. Your status in society makes no difference in the church. Your calling in Christ doesn't make you more loved by God than others in the church family. God doesn't love pastors more than he loves janitors. <laughs> We're all equal. We all need one another. You can't do anything to make you love God more, or to make God love you more, nor do your shortcomings make God love you less. He loves you because of what Jesus did for you, because you are in Christ. By faith, you chose his son, whom by his grace he sent to save you. All are equal at the foot of the cross, saved by grace alone through faith alone. You know, right now, our society is all worked up about equity. Unless you never look at the news, you don't know what I'm talking about, but, but if you watch the news at all, you're hearing all this stuff about equity. But in claiming to want to rectify injustice, they suggest injustice. In wanting to rid the world of prejudice, they suggest we become prejudice. The only true equity in the world is found in Jesus, who told us to love others, even our enemies, just as he loves us. And how did he love us? He died for us. Verse two, or three, verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, this is a Greek and Roman greeting put together, very commonly used, but Paul transforms it and gives it a whole new meaning in the Christian world. They're two of the most wonderful gifts that are ours in Christ. They're from God because God gave his only begotten son. Grace is the greatest need of every human being. We just, we just sing about it, grace alone which God provides. If we could see ourselves in the presence of our holy God, like Isaiah did, we would be on our face, undone, loathing ourselves, and begging for mercy as he did. Oswald Chambers' devotional explains our condition really well. He said, yield in childhood to selfishness, 
and you will find it the most enchaining tyranny on earth. There is no power in the human soul of itself to break the bondage of a disposition formed by yielding. Yield for one second to anything in the nature of lust, and remember what lust is, I must have it at once, whether it be lust of the flesh or lust of the mind. Once yield, and though you may hate yourself for having yielded it, you are a bond slave to that thing. There's no release in human power at all, but only in redemption. You must yield yourself in utter humiliation to the only one who can break the dominating power that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, he has anointed me to preach deliverance to the captives. And he wasn't talking about people behind bars. God is gracious. He's not willing that any should perish. He longs to redeem us and lift us to a holy life, pure and shining with his glorious attributes. What I find amazing is that he even desires to share his glory with us. Glory is the outshining of the attributes of God. And that is truly grace piled upon grace as John the Beloved wrote in the beginning of his gospel. Grace was the very thing the false apostles were denying. They insisted that it was Jesus plus keeping the law that saves us. And Paul knew from his own experience of salvation that it was the grace of God alone that called him and turned him around. He was on his way to incarcerate Christians when the grace of God arrested him. Grace is the major theme of this letter and the answer to legalistic Jewish Christians who had infiltrated the church at Galatia. Paul would have been thinking of the Hebrew word peace when he said grace and peace, and that Hebrew word many of you know, shalom. It's to have every good thing, for everything to be right, for the blessing of God, lack of fear, rest, and it it's so it's big inclusive word through christ we have peace with god and peace in our hearts and that results in peace with those with whom we come in contact peace is a gift of god that comes through jesus christ it's the fruit of the holy spirit and when we're not at peace within, it's usually because we've set our eyes on passing things. Our heart becomes attached to that which can never satisfy instead of the only one who can satisfy the longing in our hearts. When you find that you, you lack that peace within, check to see where your focus is placed. If it's on good works, you'll find you can never do enough. Jesus' yoke is easy, Jesus said, and he tells us his burden is light. Peace with God should mean we're at peace in every situation we face because we know we are in his hands. We know we are right with God. Verse four, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father. Paul explained that the source of this grace and peace comes from Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He took our sin debt, and he paid what we owed in full on the cross. And that should give us a sense of how serious our sins are to God. The word that's used in the ESV, deliver, is, is also used in the Old Testament of the Israelites being brought out of Egyptian slavery or in the New Testament of Peter rescued from prison from the hand of King Herod and the rescue of Paul when the mob wanted to kill him. So in Christ, we escape bondage. We are rescued from the present evil age. But what is it exactly are we rescued from in this age? See, an age is an epoch of time, and Jews have this understanding that there are two epochs of time. There's before Messiah and after Messiah comes. And they believed when Messiah came, the world, the entire world would be ruled by him, bringing in this age of peace and holiness. And that's why when Jesus ascended, many Jews argued that the second epoch hadn't come, that he couldn't have been the Messiah. But Paul's understanding is King Jesus' rule is here now in the hearts of those who are in Christ. And it's coming to the world, to the entire world, when he returns. Presently, it's an evil age because fallen man reigns over the world. Selfishness is the norm. Everyone does what they desire. And fallen man's desires are evil. So it is the present evil age. And Jesus came to deliver us from our enslavement to the spirit of this age. Our own passions have mastered us to the point that we can't break free on our own, as, as Oswald Chambers described. Jesus declared that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought he came to forgive us of our sins so we could be in heaven with them. Yeah, that's true. But once we are forgiven, we also have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life right now. We no longer must conform to the world or act in our former manner of selfish desires. In fact, in uh, in 1 Peter 2.11, he describes us as aliens and, and strangers on the earth, peculiar people. You know, that, that's a good verse to use in this town. I never thought of that. When uh, somebody comes up to you and asks you if you believe in aliens, you can say, yeah, I am one. God made me one. When I came to Jesus, he came into my life and I entered a new kingdom. I'm not of this world. I'm in the world, but I'm not of this world. I'm in the kingdom of God. Amen. We enter this age in which Jesus reigns, for he reigns in the hearts of those who receive him. In Jesus, we become willing love slaves to a new master. In him, we can love unselfishly. In Jesus, we can say no to sin. We can walk in righteousness. We have a power that the world does not have. And because of that power, we are free from this present evil age. 
and enter the age of the kingdom of God. That doesn't come from keeping the law. It comes by the grace of God. His presence in us enables us to wholeheartedly surrender to the life of Jesus, and that life is eternal. Our acceptance of what Jesus has done for us is sufficient to make us at peace with God and with his holiness. Our, our Western minds um, don't exactly understand how the Jews looked at the law. Originally, they thought of the law as a, a blessing. The Jews rightfully saw the laws of Moses as liberating and as an expression of the goodness of God, which revealed to us how we can be blessed and, and have peace. But they turned it into a yoke of bondage. In fact, they began to call the law a yoke by adding this literally thousands of rules around the law. And those rules made the law a burden, a yoke of burden instead of blessing. And so it is today in the minds of people in regards to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They think it will mean bondage and a lack of freedom. But on the contrary, obedience to the Spirit gives the believer true freedom, freedom from bondage to our old nature. In him, we have a life of grace and peace. And that's the will of our Creator. That's how he designed us. But our old nature demands to rebel against God's design and would conform us to this present evil age. This rescue that came through the death of Jesus was, as the scripture says there, according to the will of our God and Father. How gracious of God. We didn't have a clue about our condition or our greatest need, but God knew exactly what we needed and he planned our rescue before the world was made because he is gracious. It's because he is love. You know, beings who never fell, sometimes people ask me, well, why didn't God just make us perfect so that we would always choose the right thing? Well, that's a little robotic, don't you think? <laughs> if we have no choice, we must do it, right? And how would we ever understand the depths of love and grace unless we went this path that he designed for us and realized as fallen beings how much we need him and how great his love is, how merciful and gracious he is. Salvation is of our soul, receiving God's grace and now being at peace with him, but it it also has the effect of freeing us from the bondage of sin that's so pervasive in this present evil world so that we live a new life. We're enabled to recognize sin and can refuse to participate in it. Instead, of our entire being can become an instrument of righteousness, as Paul declares in, in Romans chapter 6. Verse 5, To whom be glory forever and ever, Amen. Verse 3 through 5 are thought to have made up a community prayer beginning with grace and peace and concluding with amen, which was a word that declared agreement to the declaration that was made. The letter concludes with a similar benediction in chapter 6, verse 18. 
the false teachers had disturbed and divided the church with their insistence on obedience to the law. This common prayer and final benediction reminded the churches of Galatia and us today of the grace and peace we have in Jesus, which does not bring glory to us, but rather to God and to his goodness. And we shouldn't rush past this final phrase of greeting. It is Paul's doxology regarding what he has declared in the introduction. It means that outshining of the wonderful attributes of God are to be praised and adored throughout all eternity. This grace and peace we have from him is to be forever greatly appreciated, along with all of God's glorious attributes. We are to forever praise his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's only right and good to do so. Yes, it is finished. I agree. Do you? As Calvin put it so well, so glorious is this redemption that it should ravish us with wonder. Take that in for a second. So glorious is this redemption that it should ravish us with, with wonder. One reason the law may have been so attractive to the Galatians is though they had trusted Christ like us, they found that there was still sin in their lives. They may have thought that the rules of the Judaizers could help change that. But the law never made anyone perfect. Instead of striving to keep the law, the answer to, was to run to the word of God that is filled with stories of grace. Grace is the theme of the letter to the Galatians, but it's also the theme of the whole Bible. From Adam to the patriarchs to Moses to David, we see grace upon grace. And all of it culminated in the grace that sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. That is supreme grace. And when we embrace it, we find our desires are transformed. We can't take it lightly and go on sinning for we recognize the great cost that was paid for us to receive that grace. This grace invites the legalist to the freedom of the Spirit. It invites the wayward to the open arms of the Father who is running to welcome them home. It reminds the faithful why they should remain faithful. Of all the words ever uttered, grace is the most wonderful, the most needed, the most welcome by those who have seen their desperate need for it. The enemy of our soul wants us to run in shame from grace when we fall, when we doubt, when we're disappointed and discouraged, but that's because he knows the power of grace to help us grow in Christ. Be resolved that the next time you fail, that instead of running from fellowship and from the word, you will run to the grace found in Jesus, in the body of believers, and in the word of God. Let grace make every fall a fall forward. I want to close with a benediction from verse 4 and 5 and chapter 6, verse 20. And I think I'll, I'll probably use this all throughout Galatians because it's Paul's way 
of the benediction to them. To him who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Oh, thank you, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts to see how great your grace is towards us. And embrace it with deep gratitude. Help us realize how great your forgiveness is, how great your love is, how greatly we need that grace. And Lord, <laughs> you said that we reap what we sow. And so, Lord, help us sow grace to others in our lives. Help us to be forgiving people. Help us to see everything as you would see it, with understanding and grace and compassion. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the challenges it brings to us and the comfort it gives us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you.